Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. I'm here in the tap room with our co-host, Maria Cabre. Hi, Maria. Hey, John. What's going on? You I guess uh, our summer hiatus is over, and uh, are you excited to be back? So excited. <laughs> I know Rocco is, too. Who's our guest this week? Today's guest is the co-founder of Go Brewing in Chicago, Illinois. His career journey started on an automotive assembly line while he was still in college. After years in the automotive industry, he bootstrapped two tech startups, which helped car dealers better utilize search engine optimization for their websites and a dashboard to better understand their return on investment. Not long after their founding, both his companies, Launch Digital Marketing and Dealer Inspire, were listed by Inc. Magazine and Cranes as two of America's fastest-growing companies. Both were sold to Cars.com. He made a career U-turn right after the pandemic and founded a brewery, which is every bit as unique and innovative as his first two companies. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Joe Chura. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so before we get into Go Brewing, let's uh, learn a little bit about your backstory. Like, Where did you grow up and what did your folks do for a living? I grew up on the southeast side of Chicago. Um, my family um uh, the long story short is they came from a food um my father's side came a, from a food manufacturing facility called Hollymatic, and uh it was on the east side of, of chicago and they helped basically create uh hamburger patty machines and grinders and things that you'd find in grocery stores um in fact my great-grandfather on the other on the other side was the inventor of the hamburger patty machine and helped revolutionize the fast food industry with ray Kroc back in the back in the 50s and he was the south side chicago guy himself nice nice yeah and then so what i've read is that at 20 years old you were actually working an automotive assembly line and going to college where were you working in, and where'd you end up going to college at? Yeah, so what happened was I was uh, a pretty much an idiot high school kid, uh, lost in life. And at 19 years old, when I couldn't even take care of myself, I found out I was being a father. Oh. And I needed, to do, I needed to do something. And the only uh, job that would provide benefits and that I could even qualify for was working at the Ford plant on the assembly line. And a few of my... My friends worked there, uh, their parents, and uh, I was able to finagle my way in to get a test to, to get a job there. And it was, uh, it was kind of a crazy experience, but I, it was my, I had jobs before odd jobs, but, not, but nothing like this. I mean, my first day I walked through this, what appeared to be a two-mile tunnel uh, down to the assembly line in the trim department to build a 1998 Ford Taurus. <laughs> and uh, part of my job that day was to put on um, seatbelts, B pillars, scuff plates. And then at lunchtime, they tell me I was only doing half the job. They're like, now you have to learn the other half of it. So it was kind of like thrusted into this position on, on the assembly line. But at the same time, felt super blessed because I was 20 years old, didn't really have uh, college, had, had a little bit of college behind me, not a lot, and um, was, was in a position to make a good hourly wage. And I had benefits to take care of my daughter who I was about to have. I mean, so you... So you were in school at the same time, or you had uh, done a little bit of school before that and were just working yeah, at the same time? Yeah, I went to Eastern Illinois for about a semester, came back home, and uh, I got my girlfriend pregnant. And then at that point in time, I was going to a community school, South Suburban College, which is on like, the south side as well. And uh, so, so just taking like classes here and there, nothing serious at that point. But as I was working at the plants, that's when kind of my life changed because it made me grow up really quickly. And I started to look around the environment I was in. And I said, I have two choices right now. I, I said to myself, I said, choice one is I could quit and I could just like put myself on the hole and not be a responsible father or person. Or I can make something out of myself. And, and at the time, like I had my daughter and just a few months after her mother and I broke up. So I was just like, you know, horrible mental state. I was like now 20, 21 years old, had this child, 
was a single dad and at the same time in and parallel kind of universe like my father what got a divorce from my mom and he was like headed down a horrible path with drugs and alcohol which i'm sure will get into which led me kind of to go brewing but um i saw that and i didn't want to be that i was like that's not what i want to be so right. the only option i had is to is to work my way either up the planet at the time my dream was to be a manager at this plants right. to walk around with a radio because that's what i saw <laughs> right. that was my right, right but 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 it's just such a it's so true in life, right? Like you're, you're only as good as the environment that you're, yeah, that you're in. Right. So like I was in this area and that's all I saw that those are the most successful people that I met in my life at that moment in time, these supervisors. So, so I'm sitting there wanting to, to be them. And I said, well, the only way I could do that is to, to go to school. So I enroll in school full time. So I would, I would work at night. I would take uh, classes during the, the day but I was running out of ways to study because I'm like, man, I'm not going to have any time. I was burnt out. So I got really fast in my job. So the job that be, that was really tough, I became really fast. at. So I'd, I would work my way up the line, put on these parts, and then I would come back to my station and I would take my college textbook and I would read a few sentences at a time. Wow. And okay. I did that. Okay. And, I, and I did that every single time I built a car. Wow. And what, what happened is I ended up retaining mass amounts of information. Um, I would, was acing like every test. I'm like, this is a secret study method because no, no, essentially but... I was a human, I was a human robot. Like, and instead of like, you got to sell this now. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah looking at a magazine or like right. doing anything. I'm, I'm sitting there like, and I'm retaining all this information and I would think about it. I would think about what I read right. and then I would go back and do it. And over, over 72 times an hour at the time we were working overtime, 10 hours that compounds. And that taught me a lot right. about life too, is yeah. that like you underestimate what you can do over a long period of time. You typically overestimate what you can do in a short amount of time. Of course. And that goes with a healthy lifestyle, working out, whatever it is. Yep. And it took me five years of doing that five years and i ended up graduating mad and cum laude from from college that's awesome um, that is awesome and and it's and it's because i was like put in that position but the other thing i realized is as i would talk to my peers at my lunch breaks and whatnot everyone was like looking at their life and in, in a period of like how many years do i have left to work here like that was their life so it, at the uaw at 30 years and you could retire and I called it the countdown. So that was the common language. How much time do you have left before you retire? And and most people at 15 years, 20 years, 10 years. And I'm like, man, I don't want to like be here for 30 fucking years and just right. think about like, <laughs> and think about like, you're on the clock. No way. Like, right, yeah. So, so that fueled me too. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to like, life's too precious for that. So once I graduated, it's, it, I could get in a lot right, of, of I could go a lot of different ways here, but the long story short is I wasn't getting that promotion. Like no one came up to me and was like, oh. Hey, you know what? You graduated. Great job. You did, you know, you're a great worker. Like we're going to give you a radio and now you're a manager. Right. Like, that didn't happen at all. What happened was nothing. I would, I would try to solicit my bosses every single break. I would talk to the plant manager, I would schedule meetings with the plant manager and show them marketing presentations that, that I did in school, did all this work. And I, then I started like to get negative on myself and I was just, man, wh why did I do all this? Like, what's the point of this? Like I, I busted my ass, went through school, no one else here did it. And, and then I realized like, Hey, it's up to me to figure this out. So I enrolled in my master's program at Illinois Institute of Technology, started wow. taking those classes at the same time, a uh, supervisor named Willis Chin, who's a guy I think about to this day, calls me over and says, Joe, I see this job opening for a marketing sales position at Ford. You should apply for it. And and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this is like, like I'm like, are you crazy? The like, something outside the yeah, plant yeah. for yeah. Ford? Yep. So I, so I, on my next break, I go over and I start, I start to apply. And then it asks me a question at the end. And it says, what's your, what's your salary ID number? And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I have no salary ID. I'm not a salary employee. I'm a UAW hourly employee. So I couldn't apply for it. Oh, damn. So again, so again, I walk away hanging my head and I'm like, through that, I turn back around. I go to Willis. I go, let me apply as you for this job. And I'm going to put in bold letters. I'm not Willis. Chin, I'm Joe. And here's my resume. And 
Little did I know, the next day I get a call from a supervisor from the marketing sales division, asked to talk to me. I get an interview. I end up landing that job. That's awesome. So how long... And that changed my life. So how long were you in the automotive industry for, you think, total? I mean, because obviously you started in the plant, and now you work into the marketing. How long? How much time did you spend, you think, in the automotive so, industry? So at that point, it was five years. At right. Ford, I was there for a total of 10 years. I right. left to be... Uh, uh, fast, fast forwarding a bit. I was a marketing and sales manager. I called on four dealers. It was at the time when the internet was just starting to take off. So right. one of the things as a, as a kid, when my brothers were playing video games, I was learning how to code. I'd b- build programs on the, on the Commodore 64. I was a nerd. I would like do all, I would write 500 lines of code to watch a spaceship go like this. That's like, and, wow. and so I knew, I knew the internet would be powerful. So part of my, not my main job, but my secondary job as a Ford rep was to, help them and be a consultant to these dealers' businesses. And that really led me to my passion for digital marketing and advertising, which then propelled me into um, essentially creating an advertising agency in 2011 called Launch Digital Marketing, right? Um, which, which we can talk about. Right, yeah, I was going to ask us. So that all pushed you into Launch Digital Marketing and Dealer Inspire. But can you give us a brief description of both of those? Yeah, sure thing. So... Launch Digital Marketing was a, de- was a digital advertising agency. Our primary clientele was automotive, but we had clients in a ton of other verticals. And what we did for clients is initially we helped them show up in search engines for keywords that they wanted to rank for. So if a dealership at the time wanted to rank for best Ford dealer in Chicago, like we knew how to make that happen for them by understanding the way Google works. So that was like, the basics of how we started, but it quickly evolved to building websites for businesses. At the time, it wasn't auto dealers. It was like real estate businesses and, and doctors and all these things. So we started building websites. Then we started doing paid search advertising. So advertising through Google, giving, giving them money, then social media, Facebook, and then understanding analytics and attribution and helping businesses understand where their, what was, uh, working and not working with regards to their marketing efforts. Yeah, so that w- that was launch, and then Dealer Inspire was a little bit different. So Dealer Inspire was a software business, and I could talk about why that was a separate entity in a minute here, but it was a software business that essentially makes websites for car dealers. So we have 6,000 today, so chances are, if you go to a website from a car dealer on the bottom, that website will say made for made by Dealer Inspire. So there's one-third of a chance because we have a third market share oh, wow. in the automotive space. Oh, wow. And... And that's, that's kind of how that was deal inspired. That was the primary product. And then we built live chat. We built a tool called online shopper that helped facilitate the transaction online. You built and live then a chat? bunch of other software. Uh, yeah, it was a live chat software we built too. Oh, dope. Yeah. I mean, cause now yeah. you go to any website and there's a live chat that pops up. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's pretty, exactly. it's, it's crazy. Obviously the evolution of the internet and how every, everything grows upon itself but how did, how did right. you how did you go about financing these startups? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, for launch digital marketing, it was very um, any service business is a lot less capital intensive as as you know. So right, it was yeah. really a service business. So once we got a few clients, we were earning enough recurring monthly revenue to hire more people. Um, what what we did early on is I had two partners. One was um, in the automotive space and was a sales rep for a website company. And then the other one owned a traditional advertising agency. And he had a big book of business that um, needed and was yearning for like digital marketing services. But all he did at the time was did traditional advertising, which is TV, radio, and newspaper and so forth. So immediately we had a book that we could go to and pitch our services for. Um, and then that's, that's kind of how it started. So it was really, it was really self, self-funded. He invested in the business, this partner, cause he had, he was the experienced entrepreneur at the time. Um, he invested $5,000 for to cover our first month's, uh, like just enough salary for me and my other partner. Right. And then a MacBook computer. <laughs> like oh, that right. was, yeah. that was it. Wow. And then, and then um, dealer inspire. Dealer Inspire was a little bit different. So Dealer Inspire, we created, as, as I was building launch, I was getting educated, listening to podcasts like this one. Um, the right. one I was listening to at the time was This Week in, this week in Startups with Jason Calcanis, and I was learning uh, a ton about business. That was 
hearing from people again, like my environment was expanding right now. Right. I went from being at the plant, this kid that just only saw these people walking around with radio saying, I want to be them to now I'm like thrusted in this advertising world. I thought I was like in, in mad men a bit, but now it's like, because of podcasts and the internet, I was getting fed this amazing information. So I was listening to these podcasts from founders of like WordPress and, uh, Uber and like all these amazing companies. And what I was, what I was learning is like, if I really have a software company here, I should create a separate corporation for it. And I'm going to create a separate cap table for that software company. Right. So that's, that's what I did. In fact, the lawyer that I hired was an advertiser on that podcast. So anyone who's advertising on your podcast, I'm telling you right now it works because um, it's, it really hits the target market. So I found this, this attorney. I told him what my goals were. We created a C corporation for dealer inspire. I did not, I was really careful that I didn't want to like commingle funds because the cap table was different, even yes. though we had common ownership. Yep. So what I did is I went to five dealers and I was like, I only wanted enough money to get us through the first year. Cause then I knew I could kind of turn it around. I could cash flow. It's itself, but I knew initially I had to hire all the developers and whatnot, but I built the first version of this software myself, which is really important for entrepreneurs to understand. Like if you're getting into a business, you need to learn the business. Like you need to do it yourself. I'm a big believer in you build it and hire to scale or find an expert in a certain area. You're not like, like my brewer, for example, right? It would have taken me like 10 years to like get, Learn get that. that part yes, right. Yes, I know. But but everything else, we work perfect uh, together. So um, so I'm, I am, uh, I was really just kind of learning how to position myself in a way to ask for money, which is the first time I ever had to <laughs> right. think about that. Yeah. So I went, to, yeah. I went to five dealers and I just made up a number and I said, Hey, I want to raise three hundred thousand dollars. And the way I looked at that is, if I get three developers, they're hundred grand each. It'll be about three hundred grand. That was like my simple math. Like I, I never like built these crazy forecast models or anything. Like that's how I operated. And um, four four of the the dealers said no. Um, in a nice way. I mean, they wanted more information. Um, I offered them a convertible note. And I think part of the reason why they said no is they didn't understand what that meant, even though I explained to them, like, hey, this can convert into equity. And right. two years from now, this is really a loan. It just was like a foreign concept. Um, but the one dealer said yes so emphatically and immediately that he literally just wired the money without any paper, without any, wow. paper, uh, any paperwork to us whatsoever. <laughs> just wow. like wires it over to us. And I'm like, Kevin, you got to like fill out these forms, man. My attorneys are getting on me about this and... He's like, just sign him for me. I'm like, I'm not signing him for you, dude. Right, just exactly. Sign me, <laughs> sign this, this note. Yeah. Well, well, in 2013, we had three employees. That year, I ended up losing, guess how much? Three hundred thousand dollars. Three hundred thousand. Yep. And the next year, I was cash flow positive. Fast forward to 2017, I was ranked number 39 with the Inc.'s fastest growing company. Wow. In America, wow. and I had about 250 employees. The That's company amazing. grew, and uh, I think the time I sold sold both companies to Cars.com right. in 2018, and I had about 450 employees total, about $40 million in annual recurring revenue. So how long did you operate them before you sold them to Cars? Well, well, the whole time. So 2011 was right. when I created Launch, right. and then 2013 was when I created Dealer Inspire. Right. So um, when did you sell? 2000. 2018. So 2018. Seven years so, total. So yeah, yeah. So five. So the the valuable, the more valuable company that I sold was Dealer Inspired because that was a software company. So right. I knew the multiple also on the software company would be a lot higher right. than the digital marketing company. The interesting thing that I did was, and why I created a C corporation is there's um, there's something called the QSBS. It's yes. a qualified small business tax yes. exemption. And yep. if you hold your business for five years, then you hold the stock and you right, sell it. Right, tax is exempt. You yes, I know. I know. Tax advantage. I know. <laughs> Guess how long I had the company before I sold it? Five years and seven days. You, you had the number on the dot. <laughs> it was like it was insane. So, so my, my I had a, I had a self audit through uh, Deloitte, and they're like, 
they're going through this checklist and they're like, you know, you qualify for this. And I'm like, yep. And they're like, this doesn't happen. Like, like people generally don't hit like that close, you know, and that wasn't the intent. Like, right. It just so happened that it worked out that way. That's awesome. Did you, I mean, was there any hesitation by you and your partners about selling or were you just happy to let this go? No, I, I loved it. Like we, we had such a great culture and everything. The, the issue we were running into is we were growing so fast that, and our clientele was changing, that cash flow was becoming an issue. And that's really interesting probably for people to hear is like, how can you have a business that's thriving yet you're in financial, and I wouldn't say stress, but I would say it was getting stressful. Right. Like the writing was on the wall that we needed money. Right. And the reason why is because we were going from these like individual dealer agreements to enterprise-based agreements. And to put it in perspective and to dive into that for a second, let's say you have a dealership, I bill you, you pay me within that 15 days. Right. Well, at that time, we, we were getting more and more deals through OEMs. So the billing went away from the individual dealer. Right, and now from, you're going through the, like the manufacturers. Yes, yeah. And now the manufacturers yeah. are paying us in 90 yeah. or 120 days. You know what yeah. I mean? So like, yeah. so like I'm getting bills now from Google for a million dollars and have to make payroll, and I'm right now. So now like, you're out. Like you, instead of the 15 days that you would get from the local dealer now you're having to wait on the larger corporation which has a longer time-based payout so now you're stretching your needs and your cash flow so yeah i i completely understand that yep yeah 100 percent. so so then at the time i was like okay well i could do things to get that cash right but i probably need to raise money then i'm going to dilute myself and yep. dilution's expensive like and i knew that and i'm like i'm not going to dilute myself even if I 2x the value of the business, I diluted myself 50%. Like, what did I do? I just created risk. I created yep. friction. Yep. Um, my stakeholders now are diluted and shareholders. It just was a bad play. So at the time, um, I had I had so many, solici- solici- so, uh, so many solicitations from private equity, right. from um, strategic uh, players that I would like, I would circle them and there was like, probably like 60 or 70 of them. Well, cars.com approached me. Um, and then that was kind of the first serious meeting we had. And, uh, the, the deal was like essentially too good at the time for me to pass up. Right. So no, I, I, I don't regret it. And not only that, it was really important for me to find a great partner because I really cared about, and I do really care about my team, my people. Right, right. They're Chicago-based as well. They had a really good ethos. Everything about them was right. Right. And uh, and it turned out that was like the best thing. The company's thriving today. Like nice. we're five x of what we were when we sold. Nice man, that's awesome. So, kind of shifting gears here, as the story goes, you know, during lockdown, during the pandemic, your wife Heather and you started developing some bad habits, like a lot of the rest of us, uh, in terms of drinking and eating. You know, I I'm, was in the same boat. I mean, you then decided to challenge each other to stop drinking for 75 days. It was during that time that you made a discovery about craving beer. What did you discover and how did that lead you to start thinking about non-alcoholic beers or NA beers as everybody classifies them now? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I have to say, to be honest with you, that I had not gone a week without drinking since I was probably 15 years old. Like I was always under the cloud of alcohol to some extent. And I never really knew what it was like to abstain from it at all. Like period. Because if you take a few days off here and there, you're still kind of feeling those effects. There's this laggard effect. Right. If you go if you go back, like take a week off and then drink on the weekend and like yeah, I mean it it you're really not feeling the full effects. Correct. Correct. So so what happened was we just did this challenge where like, hey, let's go cold turkey because we just couldn't seem to stop and we weren't the type of people that were like drinking a fifth of buck in the morning or anything <laughs> right, like that yeah, right, like but right. we but i would wake up and i'm like why did i drink so much last night and so i like and then i'm like i'm not drinking today but by five o'clock i would have these massive cravings and i would just be like oh man i want a beer so bad and heather would be like i want a glass of wine and we'd end up drinking and she has a good shot she has a good shut off switch i don't like I just would want to like keep drinking and and it it was never to the point where like I would just go out and do something like ridiculously stupid, but I would sit at home and maybe like 
maybe we should have had like a bottle of wine and we ended up having three. Like it was that kind of thing. But over time, that's this compounding effect on you. So we did this challenge for 75 days and I, the cravings don't go away just because because you do a challenge, like they were more intense than ever. Cause now my mind's like, I committed to this thing. I put it, pushed out publicly and I'm like, I'm in it. But I had, um, some non-alcoholic beer at the time and someone recommended athletic brewing, which I give them a ton of credit. Like they've done yep. a great job creating the, the space and making really good any beer. And I was like, wow, this is curbing my craving. And it's the only thing that I realized that non-alcoholic beer did. So I tried a few other ones. And I was like, this is really doing the trick here. So I went 75 days. I started to work out, started to eat healthier, started to lose a ton of weight. And more importantly than any of that, I started to get clarity. My head started to be clear. And I'm running this now huge business. I'm a part of a public company. And I'm like, how the hell did I do what I did before under this cloud of alcohol for so long? And I realized the potential that I had is so much greater than what I had been doing. So right. that, that that clarity just gave me kind of a different purpose. And at that point, though, Heather and I would go out to dinner, and there was nowhere that we could go that didn't revolve around alcohol. Every celebration, right. every restaurant, every bar, like everything revolved around alcohol. So I'm right. like, initially, I'm like, what if I can create a community here, create a tap room, one of the first in the nation that has programming, live music. Like, we don't do second it's not like we just have beer here. Like, no, we go all out. We like create an elevated experience, but to give someone the opportunity to, even if it's not like stopping drinking, it's like just drinking less. Like that's what it's about for me. So, um, so that's what we created. So you're sitting in, in your facility, obviously right now. I mean, do you only yep. offer NA options or are there also alcoholic options as well? So we only make non-alcoholic beer. Well, and I know you do, but I see the facility you're in, yes. Yeah, absolutely, yes. So we have um, we have three guest beers, uh, Chicago-based local beers. We're, we share a parking lot with a fantastic brewery. Um, we're a mile away from another award-winning brewery. So we are, Chicago has really good beer. So yeah. we bring those in here to make an, ex- an inclusive experience for everyone. Right. But we focus on... People that want to try something different and want to drink a little bit less, and and that's and that's what it's about. I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's become an actual staple part of today's environment of needing that option for people. Just kind of like you know when everything worked in with gluten free. You know what I mean? You need that. You know, we have to have a gluten free option here. I mean, majority of beer is contains a lot of gluten, but you have to have a gluten free option here for those that don't want that so i obviously agree also that you know having working towards having that option for somebody that does not drink but still would like to partake to still have a non-alcoholic option yeah and we we also have a uh crafted without gluten beer it's made with uh millet and buckwheat nice that is uh an na beer that is uh if you go on amazon and you put in gluten-free beer it's amazon's recommended choice Nice. It does very well there. Um, it's one of our top sellers. It's in market now too. So it's uh, it's it might be the only one that's not alcoholic that's actually made without gluten, without Clarex just added to it. Right, you know, of course. Made the regular way and just throwing a chemical. Right, because I um, think the Clarex takes out ninety nine point eight percent. I don't think you can correct. actually call yeah. it you know gluten free. It's gluten reduced, but it's like ninety nine point eight. But right, I correct. I agree with that. Correct. What do you think? Obviously, with your two ventures before this, what do you think those led towards this venture, and how how did that experience in the past help you with this new one? Ah, thank you for asking that question. That's a great question. So the reason why this made a lot of sense to me is not only could I have a tavern locally, but the TAM was much bigger than other what I saw the breweries be able to to do. Let's face it, it's very competitive. There's oh yes, how many breweries? Ten thousand breweries, and they all most of them make phenomenal beers. So the right. notion of me creating a regular brewery and think I could make it like was <laughs> was really risky. Like that didn't even cross my mind. What did cross my mind is, man, I could sell. I could use my skills that I learned in digital marketing and sell across the nation. And use that as an innovation test set to understand what's going to work in markets. So when we get distribution, I know what's pulling, what's selling, 
Right. I could also create a beer club. Um, I could do all of these things and I could be very efficient with my marketing spend and I could do a lot of it myself. Right. So that, that's, that's exactly how it helped. And, and so there's no like, there's not many wasted dollars here when it comes to, to advertising. I look at ROAS. I look at lifetime value of our customer. I have equations built out that I know what it's going to take to bring a customer in. And then that repeat customer is huge. And I looked at what Athletic was doing and what I think a lot of people see. Like I, I saw something different. I saw them. They're a marketing company that happens to make really good beer and really good NA beer. And they... Because of all their funding, they're just acquiring customers. Right. I mean, the numbers don't make sense. But like, if you dive into their cogs, you, you dive into, you know, there's no way that that is penciling out. However, the lifetime value of that customer and that brand building, there's, there's something to, to be said there. And I knew that I could, I could do something similar in the sense of like acquiring customers, but really efficiently because I, right. cause that was my background. So that's how it prepared me for this. Nice. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we are speaking to Joe Chura. I know you had the why on opening this business. You always need the what as well, and I'm assuming that you probably were gathering knowledge but maybe didn't have a plethora of knowledge about opening a brewery i mean did you research the business of starting a brewery i mean were there other craft brewers in chicago that helped you kind of plan this out so when i had this idea i had the idea ever since i i had done that challenge and then when it really came to fruition was like the end of 2021 and i believe like just look at things and like follow a path that's in front of you, if that makes sense. So yeah, absolutely. one of the, one of the interesting things that happened was where we're sitting now was a cidery before that's the cidery that was here actually subleased space from my marketing company because post COVID no one's coming uh, to that office and I have okay. 35,000 square feet. <laughs> right. Well, the cidery is adjacent to, uh, brewery that's been here a decade. So I knew this location would be great. And I knew that by developing a relationship and a friendship with these, the local brewery, like that could be very beneficial to us. So that was when I, when they moved in there and I had nothing to do. I found out about them moving in there. I didn't facilitate it or anything. And I asked them what they were doing with their current space. And they said nothing. It was just like, I need to take a step in this direction. Right. So I took a step in the direction and walked into their facility and I said, I have this idea. Like, what do you, what do you think about it? Oh my God, it's a great idea. You know, and I, everyone says ideas are great. And then, and then you leave and who knows what they say, right? <laughs> exactly. like, He's right, but, right, right. But, but I, they said it was a great idea. And, and, um, and my question then was like, how do you even find a brewer? Like, I don't know really anything about brewing beer. I know I love breweries. I love the, I love visiting them. I love style. I love the craftsmanship of it all. Like right. it's phenomenal. But I need to really study if I want to do this. So, but studying would only get me so far. I need to make a product. Right. And what I did know from creating the last entity is, man, I went in this very competitive industry. I was a bootstrapped Southside Chicago kid that had no formal education in what I was getting into. Yet I was competing with billion dollar companies, right? Um, the Cox family and like huge, huge companies. Yep. And we ended up winning. Like we ended up getting more market share than them. So I was just like, you know, we, with tenacity, with hard work, with, with doing the right things and creating the right company, the right culture, the right brand. I, right. I believe we could repeat history here. So I found out where to even solicit a brewer. And I posted a job opening before I even had a business or business plan. I posted a job and I said, you know, brewer from any brewery, Naperville. And uh, what I didn't know at the time was people laughed at the posting because because I put a salary in there that the that I was given counsel from the cidery guys like, hey, offer this. So I offered it. I don't know if they were just like messing with me or what, but like <laughs> right. I put a salary out there and it was shared on fa- on this internal Facebook page for brewers and the brewery 
hiring, he ended up seeing it. It was like, that actually sounds really cool. So he, he, uh, I interviewed a few people, but when I interviewed him, um, a few times we walked through the facility and at the time I was super naive. I was just like, Oh, we can use some of the cidery equipment even. And, you know, and right. it's like, no, those, like, you know, they make cider and like, we're going to make beer. It's completely different. Completely different. I've yes. learned a lot. I've learned a lot since, but like at the time, like that's how naive I was. So he's walking through it at the end. I just asked him one question. I go, James, like I can help build the brand. Like I can help with the marketing, but nothing matters if the product's not great. Can we make the best NA beer on the planet? And right. he's like emphatically looked at me and he said, yeah, I go, I will commit capital. I will commit to a proper brewery. So getting the team, building this thing the right way, we, but let's, let's do it. Let's That's jump awesome. in and figure this out. And from that point forward, um, obviously I, I had conversations with my wife and she loved the idea. So I'm like, all right, honey, now I got to turn the garage into a brewery. And <laughs> right. I'll, when her car it went the electrical system and you know, elect, the electrician came over the next day, we got a spike system and uh, awesome. we, we were off and running and we, we brewed in my, in my garage. Well, along the way, we knew we needed to have a good quality process and SOP process. And yes. that's when um, a friend of mine, worked with um, an author of uh, a famous beer quality book, Mary, and her name is Mary Pavlikari. And Mary, um, we got her to consult with us and she was coming to work out of my garage too. So we were like wow. just trying to build this brain trust of like really smart people to solve this problem, which is like, how do you make any beer? Uh, how do you make the best any beer on the planet without dealkalizing it? Which was, we didn't have a dealkalizer. So so that was the that was the big thing. So like, that's why we don't dealkalize beers because that is how we ended up making it for the first time. Nice. Nice. So, I mean, obviously we can't get too far into it. I mean, unless you want to speak upon it. But, uh, I mean, the research that I've done, there's a few ways. I mean, obviously dealkalizing and, you know, a form of distillation to take the alcohol out of the beer and then recapturing that liquid as the alcohol has been or raising the temperature to burn off the alcohol. I mean, which could also ruin the flavor of the beer by heating it up. I mean, there's a few how do you guys go about handling your process of an beer? If you even want to speak upon that. Yeah. So we use all the same ingredients that you would find in any of the styles. So if it's a Pilsner, we use the German, German Pilsner malt. Um, it's, it is uh, nothing but ratio time and temperature and a methodology that's been tested a ton. Um, obviously in my garage and in our system here. And uh, it's, it's not, we, we don't fall into like one of those categories. Like I, I spoke at, uh, on a panel earlier this year and I was given a deck and it was like, here's the four ways to make, to make non-alcohol right, beer. Exactly. I'm like, we're, we're none of these. So we're, we're a hybrid of sorts where we make a wort that just doesn't create a lot of fermentation when it goes in the, in the fermentation tanks. And uh, and then we leave it in there for a week or so, depending on how long we need to. So we don't take it out of there. We don't use any modified yeast or anything like that. Right. We literally, if you came to our brewery and you watch our process, you'd be like, that is damn close to how I make my beer. It's just right. the ratio time and temperature when a cold crash things, uh, when heat things up, like all of that comes into play in a very methodical way and varies quite a bit per style. So, thinking scientifically here. now john is gonna oh. try to find out. no 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 I, I hey listen i have my you know i have over a decade in the industry but of brewing beer in the old-fashioned way obviously where you beer, create yeah. you know a, a not super dexterous wart that is not fermentable you know what i mean we try to get as much sugar as possible to obviously create a level of alcohol in the beer so i understand it, all that process it, it is fermentable it's just that a lower fermentation rate that you would right of course get. of course so uh, i mean and, and really that you're creating that to where you're getting it 0.5 percent or less alcohol out of that i mean at that point after it runs through that fermentation are you guys having to cut it because of the wort so dexterous still or has it that's my my mind just works in you know certain ways that's uh, not, not really um we, we rarely have to cut it. We have an Anton part here and we test every step of the process right. to make sure that density meters, it's not everything yeah. over. Yep. By the time it gets into, uh, our, our packaging line, of course, um, we have a centrifuge here too. We have, a, 
a tunnel pass driver, obviously. Um, but yeah, before any of that happens, we make sure it's not above that. Very rarely do we have to dilute it. Right. No, that's pretty interesting, though, that, I mean, because, I mean, I've done some research. Obviously, we haven't gone into that foray of doing NA beers. I mean, we've we've looked into it, but, I mean, obviously, I always thought because of the equipment that we lacked that it would never be an option doing it here and that I'd have to, like, contract it out somewhere else that had a dealkalizer or, or had the distillation process, you know what I mean, to remove that alcohol. So it's very interesting to hear that you're able to accomplish that without any of that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big thing is the centrifuge definitely helps right. in, in a lot of ways. And then right. it's kind of scary that people are doing this without pasteurizing it, too, because right. we've, we've actually ran tests on other beers that are out there. There's a really popular beer out that kind of just recently came out, and I mean, it's re-fermenting in the can itself right, right now. Because, like, because the, the property is still that you're still leaving sugars in the beer which are still fermentable so if something else gets in there it is going to eat those sugars a hundred percent and yeah. that's the issue that we're seeing today is that like people are like oh i should make an na beer but if you're not pasteurizing you're selling it outside the tap room. like that's that's pretty risky right. um right and then it's it it is really like the playing with fire the styles and the ratios yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you're playing with you're playing with fire a bit too. So it, I mean, because, and that's why that's all we do. Right. Yeah. You know, that's yes. all we do is, yep. is this, I mean, we've, we're now probably 5,000 batches in plus. Right. In yeah. terms of, you know what and, you're doing. And, it, yeah, it, yeah. and they, and they started off like shit, you know, it's just like, we just got better and better and better and better right. over time. But now I'll put our NA beer against anyone's in the, in the country for any style that we have. You know, and certainly um, some in the blind case test will compare to some of those those bigger brands. Um, right. But in fact, behind me here, you can see a lab. Like we have a lab, we do micro testing on everything, right. and we're it's it's the thing that's right. lit up. I know that there's an audio I, no, podcast. I can see it. I can see it. Yeah, I mean, it's important to have that QC. Absolutely, it looks like a very sterile room right yes. behind you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was really important for us to have a good quality process, and it's it's kind of because like we have a really good quality manager and he is so strict that we want to get beer out quick right and we do have a three-day quality hold and he's like no it's not ready and i'm like come on man like like let's get this out and he's like it's not ready i'm like okay you're right so it's it's we look at it as a church church and state we respect our process that we created and as much as we want to get it back online and sell it or sell it to a distribution partner it's like we we have to follow our process absolutely i mean I also noticed that, I mean, can you, can you explain to me, like, that someplace you, in your marketing and advertising that you place non-alcoholic and in other places it's low alcohol in your marketing, is that because there can be a trace alcohol in some of the beers or, like, what's that threshold? No, really, when we first started, my thesis was to create a no and low right. um, alcohol beer. And we actually did that. So we, we, we have a low alcohol margin that's about 2%. So that's why you probably see some residual marketing of right. the low alcohol. However, what I quickly realized is I can't really sell that online. We didn't have distribution at the time. Right. There was no market for me except the tap room. And I'm like, why are we going to make this low alcohol beer? <laughs> right. when I can't really sell it anywhere. Right. And at the same time, we're running out of, we're running out of the non-alcoholic beer. So it was just like a test we did for maybe a quarter. Um, and who and who knows? Maybe that'll come back at some point. Because right. again, our mission isn't to teetotal or to say you shouldn't drink. Like some people look at this as a binary thing, and it's not. Like sixty percent of our consumers just want to reduce alcohol consumption, but that doesn't mean they want to stop drinking. Like, right. like we're not right. trying to change society here. We're right. just like, hey, if you want to go out and you want to have three beers at a brewery, like you could have six. You could have three of ours. You just hydrated yourself and you just extended your stay. So it's a right. win-win for everyone. Right. It, it, it's about moderation. It's about 100%. moderation. So it's it's all about moderation. And I think by having this option, it gives you that moderation to extend that instead of just, right, you're not trying to go cold turkey and, and say no, alcohol is a bad thing. But hey, moderate and break it up and you can extend that. You know what I mean? I, I think I totally see where you're coming from. So, but my other thing is, I, I guess it was always your intention to make Go Brewing not only like a Chicago land craft brewery and tap room, but also as a national brand. Where do you guys distribute, and how can people find your beer? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we right now are across the country through um, because of platforms like uh, Fair and uh, Air Goods now, just be called Stack and Amazon. You have retailers across the U.S. that are purchasing our product. You can find out those places on our website. But as far as like the larger distribution footprint, we got our first distribution partner in the uh, really kind of local to where we're at here in the Chicagoland area. We're getting our second one soon that's going to cover all of Chicagoland and, and the greater state of Illinois. And before the end of this year, we should be in four states, so three other states that we're in legal with right now. Nice, nice. How many different styles do you guys make at this time, and, and which ones seem to be your most popular, would you say? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. So right now we're really in that innovative phase. So we just upgraded our system to a thirty barrel system from oh. fifteen, but we left a couple of the fifteen barrels. And we left two fifteen barrel fermenters and one of the bright tanks to do our D to C kind of. Uh, I don't even want to say like quicker beers, beers that sell out really quickly. So on Amazon. As an example, like our profits, Hazy and our I, and our Bernadon IPA, they'll sell as a bundle and they sell very fast. Um, some of our other experimental styles, like we came out with a double IPA and we brewed it on the 15 barrel fermenter, and that thing sold out in three weeks. So, like we know we're gonna probably go to market with that because it was just like people are loving it. The reviews have been fantastic. It is one of those beers that you're like, this is there has to be alcohol in here. Um, so we're we're very um, we try to look at uh, at uh, what styles move in and then always kind of be testing and iterating. And that's the beauty about direct-to-consumer and having a good online presence and knowing how to do the marketing is that right. we can push it out there. We can test if it doesn't work. That just means it took a little longer to sell. So to answer your question, though, right now on our website, we have about 10 beers. You can go check these out at gobrewing.com. On Amazon, we have not only beers, but we have bundles. We, we've created some bundles to differentiate that channel a bit. And uh, and we're we've made over twenty different styles already, nice. and we awesome. really just launched in, I would say, in like February is really when our launch was right of, of this year of when we really started making our own beer and we started getting velocity the last like two two quarters I'd say. Nice man, that is awesome. I also read that uh, in April you had two beers medal in the Best of Craft Beer Awards. Which beers were those, and why were the? Why do you think the those awards were so important to your brand? Yeah, and that was just an incredible day to, to hear that we won those awards, and it was funny because we have Slackies as an in, internal tool, and I didn't even get the notification, of, and our brewer sent me the the tasting notes and I was reading them from the judges and I'm like, James, like these are phenomenal. Like what do these mean? And he goes, Oh yeah, we won gold. And I'm like, what? Like we won gold. Are you kidding me? And, and uh, he was, he's so humble about it. But I, I think what he meant to the brand is like, you know, we internally really love the product. So like we have a 500 reviews on our, on the product right now. And that's good. But to get validation from an external party that's doing the blind taste test and to know that, Athletic, who I love as an organization, right. got bronze and we got gold and silver. <laughs> right. Puts it in puts it in context just to be like, this was a legit contest. Right. We're on to something here. And it created momentum for us to 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 just be like, yeah, you know, we're we're doing the right thing. Right. Um so so yeah, I think that was hugely important. So th- to answer your question, it was the uh Sunshine State uh tropical IPA that won a bronze. And it was the suspended as some being Pilsner that wanted gold. And the wow. Pilsner, as you know, is a very hard beer to make. Yes. And you add in that the NA component, it makes it even more challenging. So we were super proud of that, that it wasn't just like a hazy IPA winning gold. It was like a very, very hard beer to make here. That's awesome, man. That is awesome to hear that. So I, I know you've mentioned James a few times, obviously, as your head brewer. What, what is James' full name? So we get a full understanding of who he is. Yeah, it's James Bigler. So I, actually, I, I've got like one last question for you here. And it, it it seems like you are already tuned into the community involvement aspect of owning a brewery. Can you briefly tell us about your partnership with Nonviolence Chicago and how you guys are, are worked in with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, uh, I'm involved and on the board of like six local charities, but as the South Side Chicago right. kid and seeing everything on the news over the over my lifespan, I just wanted to do something to create hope for for these underserved neighborhoods. And I thought, why not drive awareness? Because in the suburbs, you feel a bit, a bit kind of sheltered from that. It's like happens in these pockets. 80, 80% of the violence that you see on the news or hear about Chicago happens in these pockets. So I started to dig into how can we make a difference? How can we create, recreate awareness? I mean, certainly the money we're not raising is, isn't going to all of a sudden change everything. But what can change it, driving awareness to the suburban people that just hear it on the news, hear these stories. So um, we created a beer called Not Just Another Story. And uh, we... We created the design for the beer at an activation we did in Garfield Park for oh, one wow. of these underserved areas uh, during during a marathon. And we basically had the neighborhood and racers and runners right on the board what they can do to create peace in Chicago. And at the end of this beautiful mural that was created with graffiti, and I know, I know you're into graffiti yes, and yeah. art, uh, we took a picture of it. And that became the back of our beer can. And 10% of proceeds for that beer are, are donated right back to that charity wow. um, to help with that cause. That's and awesome. then we also created these art pieces that you'd probably appreciate too. That's like uh, they're four by four canvases. And we had a street artist uh, design them on behalf of these respective neighborhoods. And then we're selling those as isolated pieces. And 100% of those profits, 100% of those proceeds go to the Institute of Nonviolent Chicago. Wow. That's awesome, man. That's a great cause as well. So last thing piece here is where are you guys located? And also where is the best place online for also people to find your beer? Yeah, we are located in Naperville, Illinois. We're about 30 miles outside Chicago. Again, surrounded by amazing breweries. You could do a nice brew tour and hit us up here. The best place online is honestly gobrewing.com. Go to our website, you'll see a nice pop-up for a 10% offer for first-time customer. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and you get uh, free shipping over $40. We ship out the next day. So I mean, you'll have your beer within a few days. We ship across the country. There's seven wow. states we can't ship in. Right. But chances are we ship in yours. Um, you'll know that on the website. And then, of course, you can find us on Amazon. You could, you could uh, check my fact of putting in Amazon gluten-free beer and see if we pop up. And if we do, try our gluten-free beer as well. Absolutely. Or craft it without gluten, I should say. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Joe. This has been an awesome interview and very informative. And uh, thank you for your time. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Joe Chura, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thanks for starting your weekend with us. You can catch us each Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.